Lord, we do ask that tonight that uh, it's, it's exciting for us to be here as your people, um, to see you working and to see you moving in such a wonderful way amongst your people. And we look forward to all these things. But Lord, right now, we want to just focus on you and, and what you have for us tonight. And as we open up your word, once again, we desire to make application. We desire to be teachable. And Lord, for you to touch our hearts and prepare our hearts for when we come to the communion table as well as when we open it up at the end of the service, that we are just at awe once again of what you have provided for us, your son who came and died on Calvary's cross, who allowed his body to be broken and his blood shed for forgiveness of sin. So Lord, we do right now desire to just draw close to you and, and to hear from you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So if you've been with us in our study of 1 Samuel, of course, being introduced to David in chapter 16, David, as he was anointed the new king of Israel, Saul, who was the first king that was appointed uh, by Samuel, um, directed by the Lord, has been rejected because of his disobedience. And Saul was told that the kingdom's going to be taken from you and given to another that has a heart after God. And of course, that would be David, as we saw in chapter 16, David just being young at that time. And of course, David uh, would then in chapter 17, still being young, so young that he wasn't even able to join the armies of Israel, would go visit his brothers on the front lines as they stood in battle array against the Philistines. And it was that giant Goliath that was stomping up and down the valley, issuing that um, challenge twice a day for 40 days that someone come out and fight me. And David, when he heard that, he said, don't we have a cause? Are you going to let this uncircumcised Philistine just defy the armies of the living God? Because the men of Israel, the armies of Israel, all of them were, were trembling. But David was one who had confidence in the Lord, and his faith was in the Lord. And so he took on Goliath with just a shepherd's sling and a rock in that sling. And we know that it was uh, David that slew Goliath. It was also during that time that Saul had taken David to minister to him in the palace. And David was ministering with Saul, and Saul, at the end of chapter 16, loved David. And he was one that had David be his armor bearer. So things were looking really good for David. He's young. He had these you know, victories of faith. He had a mountaintop experience with being anointed to king that went to another mountaintop experience, and that was slewing Goliath. But now as we're in chapter 19, we know that David has entered a part of his life where he's in the valley. And at this time in chapter 19, David is very confused. He's troubled in his heart because Saul all of a sudden is pursuing David and is going to continue to pursue David, trying to take his life. Saul, as we have seen, a man who became focused on himself, a man who wanted to take the glory away from the Lord in his victories, a man who wanted to be seen before the people, all of a sudden as God's hand is on David. The people are recognizing that. Hey, he has slewed Goliath. He's brought deliverance to us. And Saul rejoiced in that. But then, as David was there doing um, the battles against the Philistines and leading the people of Israel in victory, it was the people attributing those victories to David. And even as they traveled through the cities of Israel, as we saw last time that in chapter 18, that it was the women that were singing songs 
to David. Hey, David has killed his ten thousands. And Saul became very bitter about that, and he became jealous and envious. And as we have seen, out of that jealousy and envy and bitterness towards David, we've seen the rotten fruit that is produced in Saul's life in now trying to pursue David and trying to kill David. But God is going to protect David. And we know that God is going to show David some very important things in his life. He's going to grow David. He's going to refine David. He's going to bring David to a place where he's going to learn to trust in the Lord. And those are important lessons that we're going to see as we continue to travel through 1 Samuel And so here is Saul, a man full of bitterness, a man who is envious towards David. We are seeing the fruit of that. And we talked about last week, and I just want to remind you that my hope and prayer for all of us, that we wouldn't let envy and jealousy and bitterness take root in our hearts. And and as the book of Hebrews says, we need to be careful of that because what will happen if it takes root there and we don't give it to the Lord? We, We don't ask the Lord, please, Lord, help me with this. Take it away then what will happen is it will begin to grow and begin to consume us. And that's what happened with Saul. He is consumed with David here. And he's going to be so consumed with David that he's going to forget about his responsibilities in protecting the people of Israel and protecting them from the Philistines. And it takes a lot of energy for Saul to here to go after David. So here is Saul doing that. David has behaved wisely. He has behaved in godly conduct and character towards Saul during this whole time. So chapter 20, as we begin to look at it, then David fled from Naioth of Ramah, and he went and said to Jonathan, what have I done? What is my iniquity? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? So Jonathan said to him, by no means, you shall not die. Indeed, my father will do nothing, either great or small, without first telling me. And why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. Verse 3, then David took an oath again and said, Your father certainly knows that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, let there be but a step between me and death. And so Jonathan said to David, Whatever you yourself desire, I will do it for you. Jonathan, we know, the son of Saul. And Jonathan, as we saw him, in our previous study, he was one that um, he loved David, as we saw uh, last uh, couple weeks in chapter 18. He was one that his soul was knitted to David. They had a real deep bond and friendship uh, that is between these two individuals, Jonathan, the son of Saul, and then David. And Jonathan, he recognizes that God's hand is on David. Matter of fact, as we continue reading, we're going to see that there's going to be a covenant that they are going to, to confirm once again, and we will see what that covenant is all about. So here is Jonathan. You recall, if you were with us last week, that it was David that was talking with Jonathan and said, you know, why does your dad want to kill me, Jonathan? I, I behaved wisely. I haven't sinned against him. So Jonathan said, no, dad doesn't have bad feelings towards you. He doesn't want to kill you. So Jonathan talked to his father Saul and said, why are you doing this to David? Why are you coming against him? He hasn't done anything Uh, to you. Matter of fact, he's delivered the nation uh, from uh, the enemy. You rejoiced when you saw it. So why have your works been towards David evil? And why are you you doing this to David? And it was Saul that said, okay, 
I, I won't try to kill David. And so once again, we saw that David was in the presence of Saul. Now before chapter 18, we saw that Saul tried to kill David through a spear at him twice. And then in chapter 18, when David came back into Saul's presence, because Jonathan's thinking, great, everything's okay. David, you know what? My dad's not trying to kill you. Let bygones be bygones. Don't blow this thing up. But Saul threw another spear at David. That's three times. And so David escaped. And Saul was seeking to kill David. And David had to leave his house. He, he would escape under the darkness of night. And he would go away. And Saul was very angry at his daughter who he, he had given to David, Micah, because um, Michael was one that, you know, would deceive her father to stall him from going after David. So David at this time is saying to Jonathan, your dad wants to kill me. Why does he want to kill me? I behave wisely. And Jonathan's response is, well, dad doesn't really want to do that. Um, it's not that bad, David. He, he's not going to kill you. But Jonathan wasn't there when his dad threw that spear at David. So in a way, David is saying, Jonathan, you need to wake up. Your dad knows that we are friends. And David, really, he's stressed here. He's, he's confused here. And he says something here in, in verse um, 3 that is kind of sobering. He says, but there's a step between me and death. I mean, he really wants to do me in. And I have to watch my step. But here's a secondary application that I want to make to all of us and, and for all of us to consider. And that is, as I think about that, that there's only a step between us and death. It reminds me that we're only one heartbeat away from eternity. And I know that a lot of us don't really think about that, but... As the scripture says in James, that none of us should boast about tomorrow because we don't know if we have tomorrow. I mean, the Lord can come back, which would be wonderful. But tomorrow isn't promised to any of us. But my point is simply this, that what I hope and pray for all of us, that the days that we do have, that we would live them in a way full on for the Lord and that we would live in a way that we're hearing from the Lord and pleasing the Lord in the way that we live our lives. And that was David. That was David's heart. He was one, as we're going to see, that he loved the Lord. He was truly a man after God's own heart. Saul was one that we're going to see his life's going to end tragically, not you know, far from now in a few chapters. It's going to be a few years from chapter 20. But he's going to die a tragic death, and he's going to die a bitter man because he was so consumed with that bitterness and that envy and that jealousy. Listen, folks, life is short. And maybe that's what I'm trying to, to remind us of once again. And I pray that in our lives that we wouldn't spend day after day and week after week or month after month, year after year, having attitudes in our hearts that have us all bound up and twisted up and, and so consumed on focus on somebody else because we have envy or jealousy or bitterness or anger or malice. If there's any of that tonight, give it to the Lord and be free from that. And say, Lord, please take it from me. Help me to forgive. Lord, help me not to have this bitterness. Help me not to have this envy. And I want to be free from those things. And as I mentioned last week, we as Christians, none of us really should be envious of, of anybody else because God has something for us. And he loves you. 
And he wants to gift you, and he has a plan for you. We all have a race to run, as I mentioned on Sunday morning, made reference to that. Hebrews chapter 12 says that we are to run our race with endurance. It is Paul the Apostle to the church at Corinth that would tell us that you are to run your race to win the prize that is before you. There are heavenly rewards and gifts that are going to last for all eternity that are waiting for us as we run our race, keeping our focus on the Lord as we are disciplined in our lives. But then also Paul would make mention that I am going to run my race with joy. And that's what my hope and prayer is for us, is that the race that you run, and you see it isn't like you're running against anybody else. It's that you have a race to run, I have a race to run, and they're different races. And God will gift you differently than he gives me. And he has a calling in your life and a place in your life that's different than me. But whatever God has for you, know that it's important. And he sees it as important. And to place you in the body of Christ and in life for you to be salt and light to others and that you would keep looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith as you run your race with endurance, as Hebrew 12 tells us. But you would do it with great joy and a heart of thankfulness in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. So here is David is saying, you know, uh, you know it's, it's one step away. And Jonathan's trying to encourage David, reassure their friendship. And so we read in verse 5, And David said to Jonathan, Indeed, tomorrow is the new moon. And I should not fail to sit with the king to eat, but let me go that I may hide in the field until the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked permission of me that he might run over to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the family. And if he says thus, it is well, your servant will be safe. But if he's very angry, be sure that evil is determined by him. So what David does is he proposes this test, lists and Jonathan, I am not going to be there at dinner. It's the new moon. It's the beginning of the month. It was customary that the servants of Saul be there at the dinner. And David says, I'm not going to be there for the next three days. And if your father asks why I'm not there, I want to know what his reaction is. If he's okay with it, then maybe you're right, Jonathan. Maybe I'm making too big of a deal out of this. Maybe I'm thinking and seeing things that, that really aren't there. But... If he is angry, and I think David knows that what he is facing is real and that Saul is going after him. I mean, he threw the spear at him not once, not twice, but three times. And if he's angry, Jonathan, do you know that my life is in danger, that evil is going to come against me? So that's the test that he proposes. And we know that, that if he reacts in a bad way, that you know that I'm in big trouble. And so here is David, and I think David wants Jonathan really to be honest with his dad, honest about the situation here. In verse 8, Therefore you shall deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. Nevertheless, if there is iniquity in me, kill me yourself. For why should you bring me to your father? But Jonathan said, Far be it from you, for if I knew certainly that evil was determined by my father to come upon you, then would I not tell you? And then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me, or what if your father answers you roughly? And so David is really, in a way, being wise and a little bit cautious about Jonathan. And you can understand this because Jonathan is the son of Saul. And Jonathan is one that he is going to be next in line to be the next king. 
He's in line to take over the kingdom. But David is, is here being a little bit cautious, saying, you know what, Jonathan, if you're going to side with your father, if I have done anything wrong, why don't you just kill me yourself? But Jonathan here is going to reassure David and begin to, to minister to him as we continue reading in um, verse 11. Jonathan said to David, come, let us go out into the field. So both of them went out into the field. Then Jonathan said to David, the Lord God of Israel is witness. When I have sounded out my father sometime tomorrow or the third day, and indeed there is good towards David, and I do not send to you and tell you. Maybe the Lord do so and much more to Jonathan, verse 13. But if it pleases my father to do you evil, then I will report it to you and send you away that you may go into safety. And the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. And so we see here that Jonathan vows to find out about his father's heart towards David. If he intends evil, then you must flee in safety. Now, as you look at this relationship, this close bond between David and Jonathan, this close friendship here, Jonathan here continuing to encourage David. David is, is stressed. David is confused. David is going through a hard time. And Jonathan is the one that's coming along and building David up. Listen, David, we have a covenant. And, and the Lord is my witness. I am going to tell you the truth. And I'm going to let you know that if you're in danger or if it's safe for you, but I'm not going to let you down. And what is so interesting about this is we go through and look at David's relationship with Jonathan, two brothers in the Lord, that their souls knitted together. There were times where David was ministering to Jonathan and lifting him up and encouraging him. And at other times, there is Jonathan lifting up David. It's such the case here in chapter 20 and ministering to him and lifting him up. And you see, that's what's such a blessing about having brothers and sisters in the Lord that you're close to. And that really is my prayer for, for all of you, that you really make good friends, that, that you develop these relationships with brothers and sisters in the Lord. And that bond that Jonathan and, and David has is a bond that is only found in the Lord, a special oneness. The body of Christ we know as a whole we are one. And as I look at, at this church, Calvary Chapel, we're very close. There's a lot of love in this church, and we're seeing a lot of new people. And what my prayer is is that we would continue to reach out to those new people that are coming. But I also want to encourage you to try to make those relationships with brothers and sisters in the Lord. And that's why we have opportunities for you to do it, why we have men's study on Tuesday nights, just not only to grow in the Lord, but also to develop relationships with other brothers, men's breakfasts. And so I would encourage you guys that to try to, to come out to the men's breakfast, go to men's study. Other times that we have Wednesday nights is still, you know, to where you can get to know people out in a coffee shop. But here's the thing. It does take a little bit of effort. It really does on your part. And that's what I want to encourage you in. Develop those relationships because they are a tremendous blessing. And when you have a bond with another brother or sister that's you've grown in the Lord together, you're, you're, you're ministering together, you know each other, and there's just that special connection that is there, there's going to be times where you're going to be lifting that brother up and praying for him and encouraging him when he's going through a rough time. And then the coin may be flipped. And the next week or the next month or the next year, he may be encouraging you 
and the trials that you're going through. But what a blessing to have those times and to have those special relationships. And what makes it difficult, isn't it, is when you're going through a hard time, you feel like there's nobody there. Isn't that hard? Nobody to talk to. First of all, I want you to know that you can always call me. People say, I don't want to call you, Pastor Jeff. You're busy. Call me. But also develop those relationships. And, and ladies, the same. Ladies events and, and um, other things. We got Koinia group that is a small group. You can go and get to know people. But develop those relationships. And here we see that Jonathan and, and David had that special relationship, ministering to one another, lifting each other up in those times that they needed to be in verse 14. And so you shall not only show me the kindness of the Lord while I still, I still live, that I may not die, but you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, Let the Lord require it at the hand of David's enemy. Now Jonathan again caused David to vow because he loved him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. So Jonathan knows, as we see very clearly in the text that we read, that the Lord is with David, and that David is next to be in line as the new king. David, you are going to be the new king. And David, the Lord's hand is on you. And David, my father isn't going to kill you. So I want to make a covenant with you, David, that when you do become king and you defeat your enemies around you, please remember my family. And the reason that Jonathan is making this covenant with David is because it would be very customary in those days that if a new king took the throne, that he would kill all the relatives of the old king to make sure that there was no attempt of a rebellion or a takeover or a coup from the old king's family. He would make sure they were all wiped out. And Jonathan says, David, I know that you're going to be the king. You've been anointed as the new king. It's going to take place. Show kindness to my family. And we will see that David will fulfill that promise to Jonathan in 2 Samuel chapters 9 and then again in chapter 21. In verse 18, And Jonathan said to David, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. And when you have stayed three days, go down quickly and come to the place where you hid on the day of the deed and remain by the stone Azel. And then I will shoot three arrows to the side as though I shot at a target. And there I will send a lad saying, Go find the arrows. If I expressly say to the lad, Look, the arrows are on this side of you. Get them and come. Then, as the Lord lives, there is safety for you and no harm. But if I say thus to the young man, Look, the arrows are beyond you. That's the key phrase. Go your way, for the Lord has sent you away. In verse 23, And as for the manner which you and I have spoken of, indeed the Lord be between you and me forever. So, this is going to be the signal, David. David, what you need to do is when you're gone for those three days, you need to remain at the stone Ezel. You need to wait there at the rock, and you wait. And then when I get the answers, I'm going to come out and shoot three arrows. And if the boy goes and retreats them, then come home. Everything's fine. You know, there's safety. But if I say that the arrows are beyond you, then you need to escape. And you need to go in safety. So David had to wait for those three days, for that time. And he placed himself at that rock. And he would wait at that rock. 
And I think there's an important lesson for us. Because sometimes when we're going through it in difficulties, whether it's somebody coming against you, or whether some trial in your life, or whether there's confusion, you don't know what direction to go, you know what you do? You wait. And you plant yourself on the rock, Jesus Christ. You wait on Him, the rock of our salvation, Jesus Christ. You plant yourself on that which is solid. And know that the Lord's going to get you through. His promises are for you. He's going to protect you. And that's where you need to be. Waiting on the Lord. Planting yourself on the rock, Jesus Christ. And letting Him show you which way the arrows are going to fly. In verse 24, then David hid in the field, and when the new moon had come, the king sat down to eat the feast. Now the king sat on a seat, and at other times on a seat by the wall. And Jonathan arose, and Abner, Abner is the head of the army of Israel at this time, sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. In verse 26, nevertheless, Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought something has happened to him. He is unclean. Surely he's unclean. So he's thinking, well, David's not here. He must be unclean. And we know as we went through those chapters of Leviticus, what constituted you to be unclean? If you touch a dead corpse, then you were considered unclean. There was other things that, that you were considered unclean. You could not go in the presence of others. So here's Saul thinking, you know, it's a feast, it's a festival, it's a new moon, and uh, David must just be unclean. And it happened, verse 27, the next day, the second day of the month, that David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has the son of Jesse not come to eat either yesterday or today? So Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked permission of me to go to Bethlehem. And he said, please let me go, for our family has a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. And now if I found favor in your eyes, please let me get away and see my brothers. Therefore he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was aroused against Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to to the shame of your mother's nakedness. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, you shall not be established, nor your kingdom. Now therefore sin and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. And Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and said to him, Why should he be killed? What has he done? Then Saul cast a spear at him to kill him, by which Jonathan knew that it was determined by his father to kill David. So Jonathan arose from the table, verse 34, in fierce anger. He ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David, because his father had treated him shamefully. So Jonathan got his answer, didn't he? The second day, here is Saul. He's upset. And he asked Jonathan, where's David? Well, he's in Bethlehem. His brothers asked him to come. And all of a sudden, Saul, this anger just welled up inside of him, this malice. He just explodes like a volcano. And he throws a spear at his own son, Jonathan. I don't know if Saul was just a bad aim or what. But he missed David three times. He missed Jonathan here. And, and Jonathan gets the point, all right? Dad wants to go and kill David. It's pretty clear now. But here's something that we see here. In this anger, in this bitterness, and this jealousy, you see the words that Saul is saying to his own son and how he is using hurtful, hurtful words. And tearing him down. And son, what are you doing? The kingdom is yours. You're not going to have that kingdom. And Jonathan could care less about receiving the kingdom. 
Jonathan is a godly man. He cares about David. He cares about the things of the Lord. But this is the fruit, the rotten fruit of what happens if we allow envy and jealousy or anger or malice to begin to grow in our hearts. And you know what will happen is you will begin to say things to people you don't even realize, those who are close to you, that, that you are saying hurtful words to them because you think everybody is against you. And that's what Saul very clearly is going to continue to do. He's coming against his own son to the point where he throws a spear at him to where he almost killed his son. And I have seen it in families, in ministering to families over the last 20 years, that there are those who will just say words that will really hurt their loved ones because of an attitude of a heart that is there and they haven't dealt with it. And Jonathan is saying, Dad, I cannot support this. And he wants his dad to do right. But he's so consumed with David and his hatred towards David and his envy and jealousy towards David. So the rotten fruit that is producing here, and it will continue to get even worse. So Jonathan, he knows the answer in verse 35. And so it was in the morning that Jonathan went out to the field at the time appointed with David, and a little lad was with him. And then he said to the lad, Now run, find the arrows which I shoot. And the lad ran, and he shot an arrow beyond him. And the lad had come to the place where the arrow was which Jonathan had shot. Jonathan cried out to the lad and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? So the key words that Jonathan would say to the lad, David knowing that he needs to escape, that Saul does want to kill him. In verse 38, And Jonathan cried out after the lad, Make haste, hurry, do not delay. So Jonathan's lad gathered up the arrows and came back to his master. But the lad did not know anything. Only Jonathan and David knew of the matter. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to the lad and said to him, Go carry them to the city. And as soon as the lad had gone, David arose from that place towards the south, fell on his face to the ground, bowed down three times, and they kissed one another, and they wept together, but David more so. And then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, since we have both sworn in the name of the Lord, saying, May the Lord be between you and me, and between your descendants and my descendants forever. So he rose and departed, and Jonathan went to the city. So Jonathan lets David know, yes, my dad wants to kill you. You need to go, David. Lad, you need to go into the city. And they have this tearful farewell of David and Jonathan. Now David and Jonathan will meet again, we will see in a few chapters. But it's a very sad time for both of them, grieving and weeping as brothers and sisters, as brothers together but as brothers and sisters the scripture says that we weep with those who weep we rejoice with those who rejoice and there are times that we do weep with other brothers and sisters when they're hurting so here is this farewell and so david's on the run chapter 21 then david came to nob to ahimelech the priest and ahimelech was afraid when he met david and said to him why are you alone and no one is with you so David said to Ahimelech, the priest, the king has ordered me on some business and said to me, do not let anyone know anything about the business on which I send you or what I have commanded you. And I have directed my young man to such and such a place. So David's on the run. Now keep in mind that as David is being pursued by Saul, this isn't just Saul that's going to be pursuing David. Saul is the king of Israel. He has a lot of men that he's going to recruit 
to join in with them. He has the army of Israel, and we're going to see at times he has thousands of men that are pursuing David. He's got his servants. He's got certain cities. He's powerful. So if David goes into a city, those people knowing that there's this, this pursuit of Saul towards David, they're going to turn to Saul so they don't get wiped out because Saul is willing to, he's like a crazed animal here, willing to go against anybody who they think, who he thinks is siding with, with David. And we see such the cases here. So David is running from Saul, and Saul has the ability to mobilize many men to help him pursue David. And David being on the run, he needs two things. He needs food, and he needs a weapon. So that's what he has in mind when he comes to the house of the Lord, to the priest Ahimelech, is whenever you're going through difficulties, know this. You need food, and you need a weapon, all right? You need the food of God's word. It is the food of God's word that's going to sustain you. You need to stay close to the Lord and you have the word of God, which is what Paul calls what? The sword of the spirit. When you are going through difficulties, when people coming against you, or you face difficult circumstances or challenges, you need two things, food and a weapon, and it's found in the word of God and closeness with the Lord. Jesus said, come eat of me. Take of me. What he's talking about is close fellowship with him. You need the food of God's word. You need the sword of the spirit. And I'm mentioning that because you might be sitting there going, okay, we know this, Pastor, but I see this happen in people's lives to where they're going through difficulties and all of a sudden they stop praying because they're so stressed about the situation and they're so focused about the difficult circumstances. They stop praying. They stop reading their Bibles. They stop looking and depending and surrendering to the Lord. And I want to remind you how so important it is that in those difficult times that you stay close to the Lord. Let Him sustain you. And you be in the Word and stand on His promises and keep seeking the Lord. That is very important not to get so sidetracked that pretty soon you start to do things in your own understanding. You start to do things in, in, in the world's way. You stop looking to the Lord, because, you know, you're thinking, Lord, I need to do something here. So keep close to the Lord. Let him sustain you. And Ahimelech here is afraid. He's asking David, why are you alone? So why would he be afraid? He's thinking, this can't be good. David is alone. This is kind of creepy here. And this is odd for David to be alone, because he would be with his soldiers, with his men. So Ahimelech, we know, Clearly, that he doesn't know this, this division and, and situation between David and Saul in verse 2 because David says, I'm on a secret mission here. He says that the king has ordered me on this business. No one knows about it. I've sent a young man away, only you. So this is why I am alone. And David lies. He lies. And we can look at this and say, well, he's doing it to protect himself. He doesn't want Saul to know that, that he's there. Remember Ahimelech, the priest here, his brother Ahijah has been with Saul. He doesn't know where Ahimelech, where his loyalty is at. So he lies, but here's the thing. 
David lying in his own understanding, we're going to see that it's going to put Ahimelech and the priests in great danger. And there's going to be terrible consequences because of David's lie. And the thing is, is oftentimes in difficult situations, we will try to do things in our own understanding. It might be lying literally to try to get out of a situation, but you know what? God will not honor that. And our sin will find us out. And what the Lord wants is, He wants repentance. When there needs to be repentance, He wants us to have trust and to, to be relying on Him. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, is what Proverbs chapter 3 tells us, right? But in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. And He would have done the same thing for David. And because David lied here, because he is trying to do things that he thinks, this is what I have to do, rather than just trusting in the Lord. And here's the thing, this chapter is kind of a low point for David. Because here he lies, there's going to be serious consequences. Verse 3, as he continues, Now therefore we have you on hand, give me five loaves of bread in my hand, or whatever can be found. And the priest answered David and said, There is no common bread on hand, but there is only holy bread. And if the young men have, have at least kept themselves from women, then David answered the priest and said to him, Truly women have been kept from us three days since I came out, and the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is in effect common, even though it was consecrated in the vessel this day. So the priest gave him holy bread, for there was no bread but there, but the showbread, which had been taken from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place on the day when it was taken away. So what's taking place here is David needs some food. All that's available is the holy bread. That's all that the priest has there in the tabernacle. Now, as we discuss in the book of Exodus, when you walked into the tabernacle, only the priest was allowed to go into the tabernacle. On the right-hand side was the shoe bread table, 12 loaves of bread representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And that bread would be changed out every Sabbath you know, day. So fresh bread would would be changed out and the priests were the only ones that were allowed to to eat the bread and it's interesting because that word show bread in hebrew literally means bread of faces it is bread that the priests were to eat before the lord as we saw in the book of leviticus speaking of what speaks of fellowship god wants our fellowship to be fresh so they would replace the bread every week, you know, on the Sabbath. So it was fresh bread. They would eat the bread before the Lord. He wants us to stay close to him, have fellowship, and for that fellowship to be fresh. And so David is given some of the old bread. And we know that Jesus made reference to this. Remember in our Mark study, chapter 2, when it was the Pharisees that came against the disciples of Jesus saying, hey, they can't pluck heads of grain on a Sabbath day. What they're doing is unlawful. And Jesus said, you know what? You need to go back. Have you not read about how David was given the show bread that was only to be eaten of the priests? In other words, Jesus was saying moral obligations superseded ceremonial regulations. David needed this bread or he was not going to make it. And Jesus went on to tell those Pharisees that, you know, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So here is that bread given to David in verse 7. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg. His name Doeg means unrestrained. 
we're going to see that he's a terrible man. He's an Edomite, so he's not of the children of Israel, the chief of the herdsmen who belonged to Saul. And David said to Ahimelech, Is there not here on hand a spear or a sword? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. So the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, there it is, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it. For there is no other except that one here. And David said, There is none other like it. Give it to me. So here David takes Goliath's sword. And I just wonder, I just wonder quickly, if the Lord perhaps was trying to tell David, Listen, I took care of you concerning that giant challenge against that literal giant, Goliath. Don't you know that I am going to take care of you in this challenge that you're facing with Saul? David, you don't have to lie. Doeg the Edomite is there. He is one that is at the tabernacle, detained before the Lord, as it says there in verse 7. And it's not because he's a spiritual man. He's the chief herdsman of Saul. He's probably there because he has to fulfill some spiritual ceremonial requirement to work for Saul. We know that there are people that come to church. Nobody here, right? That you think that if you come to church, everything's okay. I come to church and I fulfill the requirement and I'll get to heaven or I'll find favor with God. It's great that you come to church, but God wants our hearts. There are plenty of people that they go to church and they think if I go to church or if I say a prayer or whatever it might be, then I fulfill the spiritual requirement and then they live wickedly the rest of the, of the time. The Lord wants our hearts. He wants us to be surrendered to him. So here in verse 10, David flees to Gath as he rose that day and fled from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not David the king of the land? Did they not sing of him to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? Interesting, isn't it? David flees to Gath. Why would he go there? You know who is from Gath? Remember? Goliath. He has the sword of Goliath. What would possess him to go to Gath? David is, is so desperate to get away from Saul, he goes to the enemy's territory, to the enemy's city, Gath. You don't think he would be noticed? Of course he was noticed. But he's thinking, if I go into Philistine territory into Gath, there's no way that Saul's going to get at me there. And he's carrying Goliath's sword in the city, and he's going to be found out, isn't he? There isn't a single family, a single person in Gath, in that Philistine country that doesn't know about David, that hasn't experienced loss because of David, because he's a great warrior, that doesn't know that, that David has the sword of Goliath. And we read as we continue on, they recognize who he is. They say, isn't this the one who, who David has slain his ten thousands? Isn't this David king of the Lord? They recognize that he was truly king. They sang, sing songs about him. So David took these words, verse 12, to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. 
So he changed his behavior before them, pretended madness in their hands, scratched on the doors of the gate, and let his saliva fall down on his beard. Then Accius said to his servants, Look, you see the man is insane. Why have you brought him to me? Have I need of a madman that you have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? So he pretends to be mad to get out of this situation. Now, I thought, you know, why didn't they just do David in? You would think they would. And I was wondering, I was thinking about this. Why didn't they kill David? They know who he is. He has the sword of Goliath. There isn't anyone that hasn't been affected, you know, in a negative way there in Philistine and in Gath because of David, because he's a great warrior. Why didn't they do him away? Why did David go insane? Why did he act that way to get out of the situation? You would have thought they would have said, just do him in and be done with it. But I did a little bit of digging. As a matter of fact, I had to do a lot of digging. And I finally found that there was one source that said in the Philistine pagan religion that they believed when somebody acted insane that there was an evil spirit that possessed them, an oppressing spirit of some sort, and you didn't mess with it. You didn't mess with that individual, but you got them out of there and you sent them away. And as you read about that, that makes a little bit of sense. Perhaps that's why the king of Achish, or Gath here, Achish, he did that. He let David go. And, and the thing that I'm wondering, how did David know to go insane in that way and letting saliva run down his beard and, and acting insane and all of this? Could it be perhaps, perhaps, something to chew on when you go to bed tonight? That when that oppressing spirit came upon Saul, he saw Saul do that? He knew how Saul was acting? But I want to close with this. You can read Psalm 34, Psalm 56, I believe. It talks about this time of David, but we need to close here. But you can read it. But I want to end with this because here's the good news. In my life, and I think some of you perhaps can say as well, see, I've been to Gath. I've been in that place in my life where I wasn't trusting in the Lord fully. And David here in this chapter, he messes up. He lies, which is going to cost Ahimelech and the priest their lives. He goes to the enemy's territory. But you know what the good news is? God's not through with David. And David is going to receive the forgiveness and the grace of the Lord. The Lord still has 40 years of ministry to give to David. And that's the good news. That when we've been to Gath, or maybe tonight you're here and you're thinking, kind of in that place right now. I'm doing things in my own understanding, uh, in the territory that I shouldn't be. You cry out to the Lord and, and receive his forgiveness and his grace and know that God's not through with you. And that's the wonderful thing about God's grace. I look at Abraham in the book of Genesis. I was reading about him this morning when he went to Egypt because there was famine. The Lord didn't tell him to go to Egypt. He goes to Egypt, which is a picture of the world. He tells the Egyptians, you know, my wife, she's really my sister. He did it not once, but he did it twice. But the Lord still used Abraham, and he was a giant of the faith. I think about Elijah, who ran down and hid in the cave the mountain of God. I think about Peter, which we're going to talk about here in that week of Passion Week. That what did he do? He denied the Lord. Not once, but three times. 
But God's forgiveness and grace is so wonderful that we can cry out to the Lord and receive it. But David, as he writes that psalm, and when you go home, read it tonight, Psalm 34, we see that it's repeated that David says that as he trusts in the Lord, that he will deliver me. You don't have to rely on your own understanding. You don't have to try to do things what you think that, that is going to get you out of a situation that is ungodly. But you turn to him and let him deliver you. You stay at the rock, okay? Plant yourself there, the rock Jesus Christ. And you do what is right in his sight. And you watch the Lord work in your life. And when we bend the gath, leave that place. Leave that place like David did. Receive his forgiveness and grace and continue to move forward in the things of the Lord because he loves you. He's not through with you. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for these two chapters that we've gone over. And, Lord, we're thankful that we can come to the communion table tonight. And, Lord, I I pray that... Lord, tonight, there's right now as we just come before you and prepare our hearts to come to the communion table. If there's anything in our hearts that is something that grieves you, that's against you, that in a way that you would want us to, to live and an attitude of the heart, maybe we've been trying to do things in our own understandings right now that we would take a moment and we would give it to you, Lord. We would just confess it. And we know that if we confess our sins, confess our shortcomings, you're just faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Your loving Father that desires for us to come back and just stay close to you and to establish ourselves with you. Father, as we open up the communion table, we are so thankful that Jesus, the one who was faithful, the one who was perfect, that he went to Calvary's cross for us, that we might be forgiven, that we might receive just your wonderful grace and mercy, that we might know that we have the hope of eternal life as we come to you in faith. And Lord, as we come to the communion table, we recognize those things, holding the elements, knowing that this is the covenant that you've established with us, symbolizing your body that was broken, and Lord, your blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sin. So Lord, may we remain in an attitude of worship right now and just seeking you, coming with just reverence and with awe, holding the elements in our hands, partaking of them, Lord, being thankful.